Thanks so much for leading us in worship. Uh, always good, this time of year especially, to remember. <laughs> remember, it's always good to hear the Christmas music and remember that Jesus entered this world to end the night that we were in. And of course, that's what we've been in, right? For the last two years almost, we've been in this time of night, this time of darkness and chaos and separation and just all the stuff that's come our way because of COVID. And so that's why we've decided to talk about the night before Christmas and about the darkness that the world was in and why Jesus Christ was the light of the world, why He had to come and light things up. And here's the bottom line. The bottom line is hope. It's hope. And that's something we're a little short of these days. Last uh, week, we talked a little bit about the problem, and you have to understand the problem to understand why Jesus came. And of course, the problem is sin. The, the problem is the darkness that we find ourselves in, the mess that it's created, and how God is at work through His Son to change that and to save that. Now, today I want to talk about the cast, okay? So, uh, talk about the Christmas cast, assembling the cast. Now, here's the thing. I want to ask you a question. Um, if you had to assemble the cast of your life, who would be there? I'm guessing you had lots of different people, and in fact, sometimes our Christmas celebrations are kind of an assembling of the cast of our lives, and they come. And so in your cast, there are people that you love, who love you, and you, you know, they build into your life, you're deeply indebted to them. There are people in your life who are part of your cast, and they're indebted to you. They love you and you love them, but they are indebted to you because you've built into their lives. You've given and given and given. Uh, there are people who are part of your cast and will be part of your cast this Christmas who, you know, you love them, but like you don't want to spend too much time around them because they just drain your battery and you'd be glad to see them go. And there will be people who will come to be a part of your cast party, the cast party of your life this Christmas. And uh, there are people that when you hear their car in the drive, when you hear the knock at the door, when you hear their voice, it makes you want to run for the bathroom or run for the wine cellar or run for the woods because <laughs> you just don't want to be around them and you hope that they don't stay too long. Now, the cast is what makes our life great and good. It, it, it's all these people in our lives that, that build into our lives and, and make our lives better than it would be. And also, it's the cast that tends to make it painful. Now, some of you would say, you know, I'd like to sue the cast director for my life because I'm not happy with the cast that I have. And so that's the question. What does God have to do with this, if anything? Is he the one that assembled your cast, or did you have a part in that? Now, you have a story, okay, for your life, and you have a cast, okay? And I know that. Jesus' story is the most powerful storyline in all of history. And fortunately, at least a lot of it's been recorded for, it's recorded for us in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course, John. Now, someone served as the casting director in Jesus' life. And what I want to talk about is just the cast that we see right at the very beginning of his story. You know, when he came into this world, vulnerable, helpless, and uh, dependent, of course, on Mary and Joseph kind of a starting point. Are you familiar with a casting director? Like many times, you know, in the, as the you know, credits roll in a movie and so on, they'll tell you who that was. And it's the casting director who basically reads through, you know, the whole play, reads through the script for the movie or whatever it is, you know, and then they kind of look through, you know, their records and so on and find who they think would be the best person to play 
that part. And then, of course, they many times have a casting call where they have people come in and read parts for it and so on. Now, as you likely know, God, in the infinite sense, was the casting director for Christmas. And it wasn't a great film. It wasn't, you know, a script. It wasn't a play or anything like that. This was reality. And he had sent his son to change everything. He had changed, sent his son to save everything, to save us from our sin. Now, here's the interesting part. I mean, he could have orchestrated the cast. I mean, because he had decided to do this before human beings were even created, before the creation of the world, you know. So he could have made sure that Jesus had flawless DNA, that he had only perfect people in his cast. But that's not the way it is. That's not how it turned out. And if you read the Bible, which is part of what convinces me that it's true, it doesn't power wash anything. Like it, it goes right into all the details, sometimes the really messy details of people's lives. Let me just start this out because uh, Matthew talks about this. Like this is how he starts, you know, this is the beginning of the New Testament. This is how he starts the record of Jesus' life. Let me just read down through this and I'll make a couple comments as we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes into it. Abraham was the father of Isaac. So good, you know, it's so far so good. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, <laughs> Judah was the scoundrel that basically sold Joseph into slavery. And it goes on. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. This is like, you know, Matthew taking a, a yellow highlighter, you know, fluorescent highlighter, and highlighting his name. This brings up this whole mess that, you know, Judah got himself into, you know, where he got his, his you know, his daughter-in-law pregnant, okay? Now, this is a messy, messy situation. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Minadab, and Minadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Selman, Selman, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Anybody know who Rahab was? She was the prostitute, the temple prostitute that got rescued out of, Je out of uh, Jericho. She turned out to be the great-grandmother of David. goes on, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was from the country of Moab, a pagan country. You know, God had said, I don't want you to have anything to do with them. They're not allowed in the temple or anything, okay? Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. And King da so David's this astonishing man. He's, you know, everybody wants to be related to him. He's the greatest king that Israel ever had. Listen to what he says about him. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Remember what David did? got the girl next door pregnant, then killed off her husband. So this is really interesting. Like there are a lot of knots in Jesus' family tree. And it's like this all gets thrown out there. And the question you'd have to ask is, why? Why? Why would he do this? Well, I'd have to say that the major reason is because the entire Bible from beginning to end is a story about Jesus. And it says that Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. The truth about us is that we've got a messy past and we need Jesus, and that's why he came. See, if you're into hiding stuff, you know, and you've got skeletons in your closet, you know, and so, you know, stuffing them back in and spraying out a little air freshener, you know, you need to know that Jesus brings out the truth in our lives. That's the truth about me. You know, my great, 
grandmother, you know, was a spiritist who held seances in Pittsburgh and had this little, you know, herb store and grocery store, kind of like, you know, Kim's Convenience in downtown Pittsburgh, you know. <laughs> My, I, have, I have this great uncle who was shot on a streetcar down in Pittsburgh under mysterious circumstances. I think it was over a girl, you know. And then there's, you know, my great uncle who was out duck hunting in England, you know, and drowned there under mysterious circumstances in the quicksand, you know. So I've got all this stuff. You've got stuff too. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story because I've got stuff on my past I don't want you to know about. We all have embarrassing truth about our lives. But you've got to tell the truth because Jesus is full of grace which deals with our truth. And he's also full of truth. And the grace that comes from him is, of course, amazing grace. So Matthew, you have to understand, he doesn't just, you know, rat out Jesus on his ancestry. You know, he's got, he's got his history too. You know, he was, part of the, he was part of those who, you know, had basically forsaken their God and forsaken their religion and forsaken their heritage and served as a tax collector for Rome. He was a thug, you know. So here's the deal. If you need grace for your truth, <laughs> then you need Jesus. So today we're going to throw a cast party for all the people in Jesus' story is what we're basically going to do. Um, now, well, not really because they're not going to be here and so on, but we are going to talk about everyone who's a part of this cast because I think it sheds light on the whole thing. So in any cast are the main characters, and of course Jesus has those in his story. He was the main character, and of course Mary and Joseph and, and uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Uh, there, and we, you know the main characters, right? Because you've got Mary and Joseph, as I mentioned, and the dynamic between them is really important for this story. They're pledged to each other which back in that culture was like being married without benefits, okay? So, you know, it, they couldn't be together because this baby had to be born of Mary without, you know, Joseph's involvement if he was going to be the son of God. And that made Mary's pregnancy very risky. Like, she would be ashamed and people wouldn't know why she was pregnant, okay? They would just take their best guess, which people usually do. So you have to understand, it took courage for Mary when she was confronted with what was going to happen to her to say, I'm God's servant. You do with me what you want. Amazing, amazing woman. And Joseph too. I mean, Joseph would be brought into the scandal, and he wasn't even the biological father of, of Jesus, but he would have to raise. Imagine raising a perfect son. That'd be really, really hard. These people, you know, Joseph and Mary, they were great, but they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And they were young. Most girls back in that culture were married by the time they were 15. So somewhere between 13 and 15 is usually when they got married. Most of the guys were married by the time they finished out their teenage years. So it's a very young couple, you know, and they lived in a really small town. Have anybody here ever lived? Oh, I can't see your hand. But have you ever lived in a small town? I have, okay? And here's the truth about small towns. One thing, first, everybody knows everything about everybody. That's the way small towns are, okay? The second truth is no one forgets anything. So, you know, this, like your heritage there, is going to be held against you for the rest of your life. And this Nazareth, this place where they were raised, you know, it was considered backwoods back then, okay? So this was, you know, like hick. It was redneck, you know? Uh, the people from Galilee, this whole district, they had strange accents, you know? It would be a little bit like being from Macon, Georgia. Like everybody would know that you weren't from Toronto if you pronounced your words like that. And they used to make fun of these people. 
because of their strange accents and so on, because they were hick people. Now, I guess what I'm trying to say is these people, Mary and Joseph, were amazing people. But I'm guessing you wouldn't be impressed with them, you know, if they walked onto the set of a Hollywood movie. They were poor. They probably, you know, had like one or two sets of clothes which they wore every day. They probably didn't look or smell or talk like greatness, like the people, you know, with the white teeth, you know, and the, and the perfectly done hair. No one around was looking, you know, looking at them and saying, you know, these two are going to be the talk of the world someday. Like these two are going to make their impression on the world. They just kind of fit in with everybody else. Mary had no education to speak of. Joseph was a tecton, is the you know, technical word for him, which means that he was a construction worker. Like it wasn't like he had this little cool you know, uh, woodworking shop at the back of his house where he made expensive furniture for kings and queens. That's not it at all. But what you see in their lives is you see a willingness to do what God asked them to do. Sometimes no questions asked. They did it. And that's the underlying thread through the whole count. They stayed calm when they should have been running for their lives. They did what God asked them to do, even though there was a huge price tag on it. Now, the two other people in this story who stand out as heroes and kind of main characters, but they too struggled, okay? And of course, it's um, Elizabeth and Zachariah. Zachariah is where you see him first. Now, Zachariah, because he was a priest, he had some standing. He had some status in that culture. Made good money working in the temple as a priest, and, you know, when he walked by, people would notice him and stuff. So he did have some distinction, which is a little surprising then when this angel shows up, you know, and he's back in the dark corner of the temple, the inner sanctuary of the temple there, and he's burning incense, which was to represent the prayers of all the people. This angel shows up. Now, it's not good to scare, you know, cool to scare an old guy, you know, when he's in the dark like that. And he was scared, scared him half to death. So this angel begins to tell him about the great things that are going to happen. You know, Zach and, and Elizabeth had been praying for a child their whole life. I'm guessing that the prayers probably got a little bit fewer, you know, when they hit their 50s and 60s, but they had been praying that God was going to give them a child their whole life. So this angel shows up, and he basically tells them that the hope of all the world is going to show up, that the Messiah is coming, and his son is going to have a role in it, and his son is going to be great, and his son is going to bring lots of people to God. And he's going to bring great joy to them and great joy to other people. So he finishes this speech, you know, and Zach says, nah, I'm too old. It's like, what? Yeah, the angel basically said, okay, you're not going to be able to talk. If you can talk, you'll maybe discourage your wife. <laughs> so he goes home, can't talk, can't speak, and so on. And, of course, Elizabeth does get pregnant, and she's delighted. And she says, God has taken away my disgrace. Because there was a disgrace back in that culture attached to not having children. It's really interesting, isn't it? You know, in, in our world and probably back then, you know, we have a way of saying, well, you're too young to do that, you know. And, of course, that would fit Mary and Joseph. And then, well, you're too old. That's kind of the deal in our culture. And, of course, then God chooses Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know, and they're elderly. So it's just interesting how God works. Now, the one being in this cast that brought these two families together, of course, is the angel, Gabriel. It says that Gabriel had first appeared to Zechariah, and then, of course, he went to Nazareth, and he appeared to Mary to tell her about what she was going to do. Now, let's just talk a little bit about angels, okay? Angels, as you know, are not like the pictures you see on Valentine's Day, you know, cute little naked, you know, toddlers, you know, with curly blonde hair, you know, with 
kissing, blowing kisses and stuff like that. Like if you see an angel like that flying around, you better watch out because that's not a Bible angel. Bible angels are scary and they're powerful. And when they show up, they scare people half to death because people think that they're God. Now this angel, Gabriel, his name means God is my hero or God is my strength. He's probably an archangel, which is, you know, one of the higher echelons of angel. And what's interesting is that Gabriel's the one that appeared to Daniel about 600 years before this to kind of, you know, tell him what his dreams were all about and how they fit into the future for Israel and for what God was up to. So Gabriel's the one that shows up and speaks to Mary about this, and I'm sure he knew, you know, back then that he was going to be talking to Mary and he was going to be talking to Zechariah. Now, angels always dominate the eras of history when God is doing something new and doing something great. And, of course, that fits this story because Jesus Christ, God's Son, was intersecting history. He's going to split the whole thing in two pieces and change everything, change the world. Now, here's what I know about angels. Angels, you know, you'd think that they'd look down and they would see, you know, Jesus' baby being born and laid in this manger in this squalor and so on. And they'd be thinking, oh, man, how could they do that? You know, that is disgusting. Angels are amazed. It says that they loved to look into the things of God and the grace of God and the love of God. And they would have been amazed by what happened there. And they loved to serve and obey. You know, God tells them to do something. It's like, you tell me where, you tell me when. These are powerful beings, and they serve at a moment's notice. And that's why God sends them to do his will and speak. And, of course, they were overjoyed that night with the shepherds. They danced across the heavens when they found out, you know, that the Prince of Peace had been born, and he was going to bring peace, and he was going to bring good to the whole world. Now, in this cast of characters, there are some unlikely people, and that brings up the shepherds, of course. So they're out there, you know, they're kind of, you have to understand that David had probably watched sheep in the same fields where they were watching sheep, but in the thousand years between David and these shepherds, man, their kind of their reputation had sagged a lot. Instead of being esteemed people who owned sheep and cared for them the way David did, they were kind of like, you know, security guards, minimum wage security guards for sheep. So a lot had changed back then. And they couldn't even testify in court because typically it was kind of the shady people who would work, who didn't have a home and who would work out in the fields all night that got these jobs. And so it makes you ask the question, why were they the ones who were the first to know? Well, that's kind of how God works, you know. That's how he works. Paul puts it like this. He says, you know, it wasn't the most impressive people of the world who have changed the world Remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago in terms of being great and being great at? Like, the more great at you are, the more famous you are, the better you are, the more talented and smarter you are, and so on, the more, less likely that you are to actually serve, to actually, you know, the more likely you are to talk yourself out of serving. So these were the people who would watch, who would be astounded, and who would do what God asked them to do. And, of course, they ran to the neighbors and told them what they had seen. So they were the first eyewitnesses of what God was doing, even though they couldn't legally testify in court. Now, there are two more elderly people that get added to the cast here. 
When Jesus is taken to the temple to be dedicated, God tapped this old guy on the shoulder by the name of Simeon who lived in Jerusalem and he said, you need to go to the temple because remember the baby I told you about who's going to be the Messiah? And God had spoken to him and said, you're not going to die before you see him. So he sent Simeon to the temple and Simeon shows up there and he prophesies over this baby. He says, man, the darkness is going to be lifted from this world. He's going to stir up a lot of dust. A lot of people are going to not like him because he's kind of opened up the secrets of their heart. Now, he said something in this dedication service that I've never said to couples when I've dedicated their baby, although I know it's probably true. He said to Mary, he said, a sword is going to pierce your soul too. There's no way that you can be a parent without getting hurt in the process, okay? And this was even deeper than that because Jesus was perfect. He didn't, you know, hurt Mary by scandalizing her, but by giving his life on a cross. She watched him get rejected and then nailed to a cross. So he knew the truth. There's another elderly woman that was involved in this, and it was Anna. This, apparently this prophetess, you know, she was at least 84 years old at this point, and she just kind of hung around the temple all the day, all day, and fasted and prayed, you know, and blessed people. And so when she saw that this was going on, when she saw Jesus, she knew immediately that this was the Messiah. And she came over, and she blessed them, and then she went around and told everybody else, that the Messiah has come. He's a baby. He's over there. And people were going, yeah, right, sure. But she saw the Son of God. Now, as you know, most stories don't just have heroes. They also have villains in them. Um, Villains that, how many of you, well, let me just ask this. How many of you have a villain in your cast of characters? I can't see your hands, but I'm guessing probably that just about everybody, everybody does. Almost all of us have a villain in our story someplace. And if you don't have a villain, you probably will have one at some point. Now, this is, you know, where you see this in, um, in this story is where the greats and the great ats, okay? So let me just talk about this just for just a minute. I'm going to interrupt the story. We all have this kind of this kitchen table cast party, and we have these relationships with these people in our cast, you know? And so I, the way I learned this was when this band I was part of, you know, one of the exercises before they sent us out for a year together is they said, you need to talk about your, what it was like around your kitchen table and what your relationship was like around with all the people around your table, you know? And so use a double line if you had a really strong relationship with somebody. If you had a good relationship, just do a single line. Uh, If you have a broken relationship with somebody, you know, use a broken line. Or if you have an unpredictable relationship with somebody, use kind of a wavy line. And I'm guessing that if you were to do that with your cast, the people in your life, that uh, you'd come up with some interesting things. Might help you to understand things just a little bit better. So there's that. But you remember, we talked about uh, last week, we talked, or not last week, but the week before, we talked about the people who are great, and then the people who are just great at something. Now, being great, um, okay, we already talked about that. Sorry about that. Being great means that it's a person of character. It means that they know how to love. It means that they know how to serve. It means that they show humility. So that's, that's what it means to be great. And we all know what people, great people are like because you can hear it when their epitaph gets read. 
about the kind of person that they were, that they were generous, that they were kind, that kind of person. That's what makes a great person. Then there are people who are great at, like they've got a lot of talent, they can really act well, you know, they're charming, they can just, you know, ooze their way around the floor, you know, oil their way into any relationship. You know, usually they're famous, you know, they're intelligent, you know, they know how to get it done, they know how to make things happen. So you see this especially in Jesus, uh, in Jesus' story. Now, there are uh, the person that you want to talk about first of all is Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, his name was Gaius, you know, Octavius, and uh, he was the nephew of uh, Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar then adopted him, and then of course he became one of the Caesars. Now, what's interesting is, you know, his name, his title is Caesar Augustus. Augustus wasn't his last name. It was basically, you know, the word august, it means, you know, to be celebrated, to be important, to have dignity, and so on. So it was Caesar, and he was the dignified, he was the, he was the important one. So he had that attached right into his title, Caesar Augustus. And the interesting thing is that he just gets a footnote in Jesus' story, you know? He's, his only claim to fame is basically, whole, you know, having a census so people could be taxed, and that actually got, you know, Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem where Jesus, so Jesus could fulfill the prophecy there. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That's it. That's it. That's all it says. And he knew nothing of Jesus, you know, uh, the Son of God. See, he used to call himself the Son of God. He used to imply that he was the one who was the Prince of Peace. People had to say Caesar is Lord. That was just part of the protocol back then. So he claimed to be God, but he wasn't God. And he died. And Jesus lived on. And Jesus, you know, he was born in this back part of, his, of, his, of the Roman Empire, but he actually took over the Roman Empire within 300 years. Now, there's, even a, there's another person there who is even more of a villain and more of a big deal for the Jewish people of that day. And, of course, that's Herod. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? Jesus is born just seven miles from Herod's palace, and yet he doesn't even find out about it until, you know, a little over a year later, apparently, when some magi came, you know, some visitors came, and they basically told, you know, they're walking around the city saying, you know, where's the king of the Jews, you know? He's just been born. Now, you have to understand that kind of questioning was like deadly in that culture. Nobody asked that question when Herod was in town because he'd killed off, you know, at least two of his wives. He'd killed off a few of his sons who had basically seemed to be a threat to that. So he was vicious, like he had, he had basically, you know, killed and murdered his way to the top. Perfect example of somebody who is great at, because you read his story and he had talent. He was able to charm, you know, Caesar into giving him the role that he had, you know, in, in, uh, as king of the Jews. Famous. He was well known. And you go to, you know, Jerusalem these days or go to Israel, and you, you, somebody said, I went to Israel to walk where Jesus walked, and I heard what Herod built. Because he's got all kinds of stuff built all over the country. Famous things, you know, that people go to see. He was a get-it-done kind of person. But he wasn't great. He's a little bit like, you know, Hitler would be in our culture. Hitler, you know, built, a, built this huge war machine, you know, had people who bowed and scraped at him, but he was not a great person by any stretch of the imag- imagination. Now, the counterparts to Herod are what you would consider to be probably truly great people. It's the Magi. And uh, so 
that's, that's what we call them. We get the word magic from them and magistrate from them and magician from them because of the fact that they were stargazers. That's kind of the role that they served, you know, in the courts. Now, we have this oral history on them in form of a song, you know, We Three Kings. So you need to understand there were probably more than three, you know, when you traveled the distance that they traveled, you didn't do that with just three people, okay? It was probably more like 100 people. And they weren't kings, okay? They were star watchers. They were part of one of the courts back then, probably came from Babylon, which then, you know, it says of Orient are. They weren't from the Orient. <laughs> they were from the Middle East. They were probably from Babylonia. The, the phrase that would actually ring true here would be, bearing gifts, we travel afar, that they did, okay? They brought gifts to Jesus, probably financed, you know, the journey that uh, Jesus and Joseph and Mary had to make into Egypt. And they traveled, if they came from Babylonia, which we suspect they did, you know, they traveled about 1,200 miles. Now, the really cool thing is that they probably got tipped off by Daniel, okay, uh, in terms of, you know, Jesus being born, knew to look up at the stars and so on. Now, you can just imagine, as kingmakers in their own land, Okay, they come, and there could be as many as a hundred of them. They're wandering around Jerusalem saying, where's the king? Where's the new king of the Jews that's just been born? So, man, Herod's, you know, phone line lit up, you know. And so he's really angry. And, of course, everybody's angry because they know that when people start saying stuff like this, Herod starts killing people. And he actually, Herod actually went, you know, to this village. He asked them, will you come and tell me where he is so I can come and worship him? a.k.a. murder him, and they were, the ones that, they were the ones that basically, you know, tried to, you know, they evaded him, went into, back to their home in another way, and of course, then Herod went and murdered all the children who were two years of age and younger, and you have to understand, that was consistent with his character. But these guys, these magi, they were pagans, okay? They were from another country. They were literally the people who were living in darkness, and they come they're the first ones to recognize Jesus for who he really is. They're the first ones to get down on their knees and worship him. And they're the first ones to bring him the very best gifts that they could bring. It's an amazing, amazing scene. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The other people who find their way into this story, of course, are Herod's soldiers. They're sent into Bethlehem to try and kill off Jesus. And so they become, you know, part of the whole villain part of what goes on in Jesus' story. What you find out in this is that no matter what people try to do, you'd think that Jesus would have sent at least a medium-sized angel to kill off the soldiers when they tried to do that, but he didn't. He just basically warned Joseph and Mary and Jesus to get out of town, and they did. They took off. And he's always one step ahead of people who want to damage who want to hurt his cause. Now, there are four other members of this cast that I want to talk about in closing for just a few minutes. And the first group are people who actually knew better. Like they knew their Bibles. <laughs> Backwards and they knew their Bible better than I do, and they know, knew their Bible better than you do. They had, like, gone through the Bible with all the prophecies, you know, about this one who was supposed to come, this Messiah. Like they knew it all. And yet when Jesus was born just seven miles away, they never even went to check it out. It's fascinating that knowledge is not what saves you. And so let me just kind of put it like this because I think this is true and this is something that you and I need to remember. Knowledge about God that doesn't soften and change your heart will harden it. 
And it's just something we need to remember because we think, you know, sometimes that knowledge about God is kind of the key to everything. The combination of knowing more and the lack of humility, which you apparently see here, has always been a deadly combination. Now, there's another character behind these villains. And uh, he's the invisible arch enemy of God, and you probably know who I'm talking about. He gets other people to do his dirty work for him, which in this case is Herod. And of course, it's Satan. The Bible calls him the devil. Jesus calls him the evil one. And he's very real, but you see, part of what he does is try to convince people that he's actually not there. Paul says he masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, he tries to pretend that he's good and what he's up to is good and so on when it's evil. Now, the book of Revelation reveals the fact that he's actually there. And, you know, the author has a very revealing vision, and this is one that you will never see in any Christmas play that kids do, you know, and you'll never, you know, read about it on Christmas Eve. It's not talked about in any Christmas song that I'm aware of, okay? You won't read about it on Christmas cards. Let me read the passage that describes it. And this is found in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, if you want to read along. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So it's talking about the nation of Israel. You can, you know, in terms of just, you know, the 12 stars on her head and everything like that. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with the iron scepter. And of course, we know that that's Jesus. Now, Herod was the one behind this. Herod was the one who was kind of the empowered one from, you know, Satan to try and kill off Jesus before he could do what he had been called and what he had been born to do. So you just need to remember, the devil is really clever. He's better at disguises than kids at Halloween. Now, I want to close by talking about one more unseen person in this drama. And it's whoever was working at the front desk of the inn that, Joseph and Mary went to on the night that Jesus was born. You know, the one that had the no vacancy sign up front? So I've just kind of drawn it up here. I'm sure it didn't look like that, but let's just pretend that it did. Okay. Now, I know all the usual stuff, okay? They had, you know, all these people in town because of the census and so on, and they're running a business out of city mission, you know, and it was crowded and so on, and they didn't you know, want to kick out any guests that, you know, could actually be paying guests, you know, maybe, maybe there was more than one in that Joseph and Mary went to. But here's what I think, if you want to know. I think that whoever was asked, because I'm sure that Joseph and Mary had to ask somebody, simply saw a poor, pregnant young woman, you know, unspectacular young couple, and they thought to themselves, well, they're not going to be able to pay, and maybe when this girl gives birth, she's obviously in labor, you know, all the yelling and stuff is going to wake up our guests and so on, and so we're going to wait until we get somebody who's better paying and better dressed. So Mary and Joseph are stuck in a place that's designed for animals. And that's where Jesus was born. And it, you know, says Jesus, sweet Jesus, you know, asleep on the sweet-smelling hay. Well, eh, let's not romanticize this, okay? And the humility. I mean, you can't get much more lowly than being born in the garbage shack out back or whatever it happened to be in that culture. 
So we're in this place designed for animals, and Jesus was born there. And it's just, you know, that's the image, though, that the angels sing about. That's the angel, that's the image that they give the shepherds, say, this baby's born, you know, he's wrapped in clothes. Well, all babies are wrapped in clothes, but he's lying in a manger. <laughs> well, that doesn't happen. That kind of does narrow down, you know, who this might be. And the only place to put Jesus was a place that no parent in their right mind would ever brag about. There's no parent I've ever met who would say, yeah, you know what, my son was born and they laid him, you know, he was right down next to a, a pile of manure, you know, with flies on it. Nobody would say that. Nobody would brag about the fact that their grandchild was born in a subway station, you know, that smelled like urine. Nobody brags about stuff like that. But God, the casting director for the world, splitting drama isn't done yet. Because you see, at the very center of it is the hero, it's the son, it's the guest of honor, it's his son, the Lord, who came to save us and save everything. And he humbled himself more than anybody else ever has to step out of heaven and do that on our behalf. And the Bible is his story. One final note, and we're going to talk more about this next week. And it's the fact that Jesus enters our story. And we have a story. We have people who walk into our story and we don't necessarily even know who they are. You know, they sometimes are not invited into our story. But when they walk into our lives, they become part of our story. And we walk into the stories and walk into the lives of other people. And what happens because we're there makes a huge difference. Because of who Jesus is, you see, this is just ongoing. Jesus is in your story, because you're hearing me. Jesus is in your story, whether you want him to be or not. And you have to decide what you're going to do. You know, I can sing this song. You know, you probably have heard it if you've hung around the church very much. You know, there's room in my heart, Lord Jesus, you know. And I have a little tear come down my face, you know, because, you know, I just so, you know, you got turned away, but there's room in my heart, you know, for you. And yet, you know, I'd like to imagine myself the hero. I'd like to see myself like, you know, Joseph and Mary said, I'm your servant. You do with my life whatever you want to do. Whatever it costs me, you do whatever you want to do with me. But I fall far short of that. And maybe you do too. Because you see, to have Jesus in my life, to have him walk into my life, and want to spend room in this inn, I, I'm just as likely as you are to say, well, you know, I, like I'm busy. Like this is really busy. This is not a good time for me. I'd like to think that I'd give him my very best. But then there's the reality, right? See, I know and you know that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord. We know that there's going to come a day when every knee will bow before him. And yet, <laughs> kind of like Herod, we get a little protective of our kingdom. Hey, I'm king in this kingdom. Just don't come in here asking for my stuff. Don't come in here asking for my time. This belongs to me. I might give it to you if I think you're worthy. We get very protective of that. And you see, the question is, what makes us any different than Herod? And what is it that actually makes us any different than the person who was working at the front desk of the inn that night? We would like to think that if Mary and Joseph showed up, you know, we would never turn them away, you know. We would never send them out to the shed or to the garage or to the back parking lot, you know. 
But, you know, I live a busy life, you know. I'm just not sure how much room there is, you know. I've got so much to do. And yet the truth is, you know, we many times, we have room for the things that we want to do, right? We make room. We make time for those. And that's the deal, isn't it? You make time for what is important, whether or not the other stuff gets done or not. And the bottom line is, you know, for you and me, like we don't need three pieces of, you know, government-issued ID, you know, and a COVID passport at the front desk. We know it's Jesus who asks for time. He talks about the final curtain. He talks about the judgment day. And he says to people who are puzzled, you know, at his claim that they cared and they fed him and they gave him something to drink and helped him when he needed help. This is what he says. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Well, that changes it, doesn't it? That these people who kind of walk onto the set of our lives, Jesus said, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I think, well, I never did that. But you did it for the people that you love. It was me who was there. It was me. So you look at the cast of characters in Jesus' story. Mary, I'll do it. I'm your servant. You tell me what it is. Zach, I'm too old. You know, I'm tired. You know, and I got to get my got to get my check from the government. Caesar, back corner of his, you know, Jesus, who? Herod, hey, I'm king around here. You do what I say. Shepherds, man, we got to go tell everybody about this. Priests, well, I know. I know. I read the Bible. Next, magi, we got to go and give. We've got to go and worship. Innkeeper, we're full. What about you? What about you? See, this innkeeper, you think about what would have happened if they'd had a different response. They, this person, whoever it was, they talked themselves out of being great. And we do the same thing. We come up with our excuses for why when Jesus walks into our lives, we don't recognize him. We don't do a thing. Jesus is the hero in the cast. And the good news this morning is that He is in your cast. And He is for you. He came to give His life for you. What will be your response to Him? Let's pray. God, it's so easy to get busy doing just about everything else in the world that comes up. And to burn down through all of our time and burn down through all of our money. And yet if we had to label it, we would have to admit that it was pretty much all for us. I pray that you help us to have the discernment to find the hope that we can find in giving our lives away and making the difference that we've been called to make. Bring hope into our hearts for the future. Bring hope into our hearts for our future and bring hope into our hearts so that we can pass it out wherever we go. Because Jesus, you came to save us, full of grace and full of truth. Amen.